Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freckled Foodie and Friends, a podcast focused on making healthy living approachable, hosted by yours truly, Cameron Rogers. Friends, happy Friday. You've made it through the week. It is time to celebrate. I am not sure what is on your schedule for this weekend, but I have a suggestion that you should definitely add to your agenda. Pancake Sunday. During quarantine especially, I am all about finding small things to look forward to and celebrate to differentiate the days. I don't know about you, but it's really easy for Monday to feel like Wednesday, to feel like Friday, to feel like Sunday. And then all of a sudden time has passed and I have no idea where I am. So to make this Sunday extra special, why not use the weekend to make a serious breakfast spread for you and whoever you are quarantining with. Whenever I make pancakes, I rely heavily on the Simple Mills pancake and waffle mix to make sure I'm providing the most delicious gluten-free breakfast for my family. I know I've posted many of times of me trying to make my own pancakes or waffles and epically failing. I don't know how everyone is able to do it so perfectly, but thanks to today's sponsor, Simple Mills, I make them perfectly every single time. I know it requires like very minimal effort when you're using a baking mix, but I am freaking here for it and you can be too. Their mixes have 25% less sugar than other baking mixes and they're sweetened solely using coconut sugar. Plus the number one ingredient are nutrient dense on Their online store is packed with other baking mixes, including artisan bread, muffin, brownies, cookie dough, and so much more. If you're interested in trying any of the Simple Mills products, which I highly recommend, check out their website, www.simplemills.com, and use code FFNFRIENDS, that's F-F-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S, until June 5th for free shipping. Also, be sure to follow them over on Instagram, at Simple Mills, for wellness tips and delicious recipe inspiration. Now let's kick it off to today's episode. Hey guys, it's me, Cameron. I am currently still in Florida as I am recording this, and we are joined with Ariel Laurie, who is joining us. You're in LA right now, right? I am, yes. Yes, and the voice behind the Blonde Files podcast, which is a recent podcast that I have just started listening to and really loved. So thank you, first and foremost, for the content you're putting out there, because I really enjoy your show a lot. Thank you. You're so welcome. Um I like to kick off the show before we dive into everything about, you know, your journey and what you're doing right now by simply asking, how would you define success? Oh, I like I know, this I question. I throw it like right at you in the beginning. <laughs> Just get right into it. Well, I'm going to kind of have to steal from my husband a little bit. I had him on my podcast a few weeks ago and he obviously is very successful. I say obviously assuming that people know who he is. <laughs> I didn't um, know at first, actually. Yeah, they can just Google. <laughs> yeah. So I had him on the show and we were talking about success and he said success is a verb. And I was like, oh yeah, like that's the most eloquent, simple way to articulate it, I think. Um, I know personally for so long, I felt like success was when I hit a certain milestone. So success would be once I achieved something in my personal life or success mm-hmm. would be when I reached some, you know, some professional milestone. And of course the goalpost always moves. So you're just kicking the ball down the field Obviously. nonstop. <laughs> and so when he said it's a verb and it's the process, I was like, yes, that is it. Like I feel like I have felt truly successful in the last year or so, not because of anything external, but because I have felt super content with where I am in life and what I'm doing. And so I think for me, that would be the definition. It would be being being content and being happy with where you are. I really like that because I've never thought of it as a verb either. But similar to what you say, like, my whole life has been these milestones that I'm reaching for. And then we all know the second you get the milestone, it's, okay, what's next? And I never really give myself time to relish in that success in a way. And so if you turn that into a verb more and it's more of an ongoing emotion, it almost makes me feel less guilty about not enjoying the moments and like providing myself the opportunity to actually I don't want to say relish again, but to actually enjoy that specific moment rather than just focus on the next best thing. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think if you look at, you know, a kind of, I don't know, some milestone, say a professional one or a personal one, like graduating school or something like that. Mm -hmm. If you look at that and you look at the milestone as the achievement, really it's the process that's the achievement. So it's learning how to live in the process because that, that milestone that's, that is going to last for five seconds and then you're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. So it's really learning to, to live in that process and enjoy the process and it's going to be good and bad always, but just really, really leaning into it. And, and yeah, I like, I like your word relishing it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I was actually on a run yesterday listening to a different podcast and they were talking about actually something very similar. And it had me thinking, okay, what are these things? Like I have a vision board and I have so many goals and, you know, I'll sit down in the first month of the year and write out some business goals for that upcoming year. And I started to think about the emotions I would feel if they came true noticing the fact that I would probably just then create another goal to focus on. And it, in an odd way, had me really grateful for the current phase I'm in because I'm in that growth phase. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I still feel like there's so much more to come that excites me. And I almost fear hitting that place of actually reaching that point because then it's, okay, what's next? And I almost similar to what you said, but I almost felt the most successful in a verb terminology because I'm feeling it right now. Yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that. I think the good news is, is that we're always growing and we're always evolving. (laughs) And the next door that opens, that you open, that's going to open another door. And so it's hard to imagine now what that's going to be. And I can totally relate because I feel like I'm at a point where I'm like, well, I don't know what's next. I mean, I know, I'm sure we'll get into some of this, but like, I know I'm going back to school and that's going to be a long process and there will be a finish line there. And then that, but that Mm -hmm. will lead to something else. And professionally, like, I feel like I'm achieving everything that I've wanted to, which is interesting in this, um, I don't know, in the world of digital social media, all of that, because you're yes. always kind of, <laughs> com- you see what everyone else is doing and you kind of naturally feel like you're not doing enough. But I do mm-hmm. feel like um, I'm doing everything right now that I want to do. So yeah, I mean, it, there will always be something. <laughs> yeah. And is that the level of content that you were kind of mentioning before that you're feeling this year? Yeah. And I think some of it is probably, I feel like some of it kind of comes with age, I feel like I've just naturally kind of matured out of that, like, go, 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 like competing with everybody else around me. You know, I feel like I've Mm -hmm. really, really settled into like who I am and where I am in life. And I have faith in everything that I'm doing. So I think part of it is, is age and like where, and where I am in life, you know, being married and kind of being settled down and all of that. Um, But I think it's also just a lot of work. It's like meditation has really helped me with that. It's helped me see the truth of my life and not just kind of the fleeting thoughts that are like bouncing around our brains all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, what else? Being sober. I'm sober six years. So I I started out. There's so many questions. I feel like (laughs) something like we'd have to ask you this before I really want to dive into the sober talk. Uh Uh-huh. Um, because I have a lot, I want to, I'm really inspired by your journey and I also have a ton of questions, but just for a second, I am curious, how old are you? Cause I feel very connected to what you just said about age. I am 34, which okay. is crazy. Well, you look so young. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I feel I've always had a bit of an older soul mm-hmm. and I spend time with people who are a bit older than me. And for me, when I was in like my young 20s, so I'm 28 right now, Mm -hmm. but when I was in my young 20s, I'm like, I can't wait to be in my late 20s, early 30s. Like that is where I will thrive. I'm so excited for that phase of my life. And I feel like the past few months specifically, I've found this level of comfort and contentness that I've never experienced before where I'm continuously reminding myself of the idea of abundance and that 
nothing is limited. And just because one person got something, whether it's an opportunity or a job or whatever it may be, doesn't mean that there isn't another opportunity out there available for me. And I think reminding myself of that, but then also I do find this newfound confidence in just being myself and sitting with that and accepting it and feeling content in a way. And I think it does come with age. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, if if my husband, who's twice my age, listened to this, he would be like laughing at us. <laughs> no, but I mean, I feel the same I always way, say to him, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be like, I'm really, I'm really like settling in now that I'm aging. And he's like, just stop. <laughs> but really it's fair. so true. I mean, it really, I think it's twofold or it's probably tenfold. But yes, I think that age definitely has something to do with it. Like the transition from 20s to 30s and like kind of settling into your early 30s, at least for me, was so transformative. And as we mentioned, and we'll get into more later, mm-hmm. I did get sober in that time. So I got sober at 28. So that was like a huge transformation. And and when I got sober, I was like a little baby bird, like fresh out of the egg, like had no clue what was going on. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of growth there. But yes, I think age is one part of it. Um, I would not want to be in my twenties again. (laughs) And then I think doing the work, like you mentioned that you meditate too, and that's, you know, doing the work will certainly, um, get you to that point too. Right. I mean, there, you can't just expect this all to come to you. There has to be some self-work and I've done almost everything under the sun Mm -hmm. to find what works for me. And, you know, that's a mix of a ton of things, whether it's meditation, some journaling, acupuncture, anti-anxiety medication. Like I, I try it all and I finally found what works for me, but I do think that it does take work. And regarding your sobriety, I'm really inspired by that extent of work because I know how much self-work goes into getting sober. And I would love if you, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, but about your journey to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a totally open book when it comes to this. So I'm going to try to condense it as much as possible because I, I could just go on and on and on. But basically I you know, I'll start kind of at the beginning. I had a really good upbringing. I had everything I wanted and needed in my childhood and teenage years. Um, There were none of those markers that you would imagine with people who Mm -hmm. end up with alcoholism or addiction. There was no trauma when I was younger, no divorce, no, no nothing. Um, I basically... Yeah, I had a really normal childhood. I went to private school, everything, and everything was fine until I found alcohol. I think it was around my junior or senior year, and I will never forget the first drink. It was like, holy shit, I can breathe for the first time. I didn't even know how uncomfortable I was until I felt comfortable, basically. And so you noticed it right then. Oh, my I God. I wonder about that. Yeah. I mean, it was a disaster. So the first time I ever drank, I... I remember my dad had to come pick my friend and I up from this party and I I peed my pants waiting for my dad to come pick us up. I couldn't hold it. It was my first time ever getting drunk. And Mm -hmm. um, the next morning I was violently ill, throwing up, dry heaving in the kitchen sink. Like I was just a mess. Worst headache of my life. But I was like, that was amazing. That -hmm. was the best. I mean, it was just like, wow. It felt like I could breathe. That's the only way that I can really describe it. And I felt comfortable in my skin and I felt like I was, um, I wasn't different than anybody else. And I felt, you know, the cliche is like prettier and and smarter Mm -hmm. and more confident. Did you notice that you were not feeling those things before this first time drinking? Like, did you notice I, were you thinking, I don't feel that confident or I'm not as beautiful as the person next to me or those things? And then when you drank for the first time, it was like, oh my gosh, now I feel those. Or did it untap emotions that you didn't know you had? It kind of untapped emotions I didn't know I had. I mean, I was always popular and outgoing and smart and athletic and, you know, outwardly I was confident. Um, So from the outside, like, I don't think anybody would have known that, I didn't feel comfortable. I don't think I knew I felt comfortable. I do, like, obviously I've had a lot of time to go back and kind of explore these things in sobriety and in adulthood. And I can recognize that from a really young age, I was 
really, really, really obsessed with outside things, like whether it was a toy when I was really young or um, clothes. It was always clothes from like fifth grade on. I needed this pair of shoes or I needed those bell bottoms. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, whatever it was. It was not like that for me, but there are like, it's, you know, my sister was like that. Like there are things where it's like, I need this item. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And I think I described it. I did a podcast on this recently and I I described it as primal because that's really how it felt. It felt like Mm -hmm. I need this thing to make me feel okay on the inside. And of course, at the time I couldn't see it as that, but So it was kind of like, by the time I found alcohol, I was kind of primed for it because I was looking for something external to fill some internal void. Um, I was also in a pretty tumultuous relationship in high school, and that was really hard for me to cope with. So when I found alcohol, it was like, oh, okay, this is like doing all these things for me, making me feel more confident and more at ease. And then it's also helping to numb out the bad feelings. So it Mm -hmm. was like very very quickly my solution to all of my problems in life. And um, it got bad really fast. I drank like, I would drink the same amount as my peers, but I would always black out. I would wake up in the hospital, not knowing how I got there. I would wake up in really strange situations. I would have to be picked up at parties because I was like blackout falling down. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. It was just bad from the get-go. And Long story short, I ended up going to treatment when I was 20. I got a DUI, um, and that was my first introduction to treatment and recovery. And I did feel like a real camaraderie with the people there, and I felt Mm -hmm. really good being able to be my authentic self again. And But I just wasn't ready. I was like, I'm just doing what my friends are doing, but I happened to get caught. And at that point, I was doing- Were you forced into- treatment because of a DUI or was it voluntary? Um, It wasn't exactly forced, but it was like, if you go to treatment, we can probably get this off your record kind of thing. So at that point I was living in Rhode Island and it was February and it was fucking freezing. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Can I curse? Oh oh my God. Don't worry. You can curse all you want on here. Okay. And they were like, you can go to treatment in Palm Beach, Florida. And I was like, yep. See you later. (laughs) Here I go. Peace out. And I went down there. And uh, that began a number of really dark years because I didn't stay sober. And I found people who liked to party too. There's no shortage of them in South Florida. (laughs) And uh, I got in really sketchy situations and I just couldn't hold it together. And at that point, my peers were kind of passing me by. They were graduating college and going to grad school. I forgot to mention I dropped out of Syracuse after a semester. I was just about to ask. (laughs) This was after college or during the college years? Yeah. I went to Syracuse for a semester. I had a boyfriend back at home at that point, and he was very much an addiction too. So, um, And at that point, I was also kind of off to the races with drinking and all that. So I just couldn't focus and I left. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried, you know, I, I tried from 20 to, I think I lived in Florida till I was like 25-ish, I want to say, 24, 25. I tried to get it together and I always felt like if I just get the right job or if I just go to school and I get the apartment, and again, it's these external things mm-hmm. and these um, you know personal or professional achievements, then I would be okay. And at that point, it was like, I was drinking a lot, but I had also found cocaine and cocaine really just enhanced my drinking because then I could drink a lot and not black out, but then I needed Xanax to come down and um, then I would take Adderall to come up. And so there was a lot going on. Yeah. I ended up going in and out of treatment a couple of times. I'll kind of shorten this and- No, share it all. And then my best friend at the time got murdered and I found her. And that was at that point- my parents were like, okay, this is enough. They like came down to Florida, pulled me out, and um, and then I moved out to California. I'm skipping over a lot here, but after that I happened- go back. Obviously, I have okay. a question. <laughs> you can ask your question. Oh, um, I don't want to interject you, but I'm, I feel like with that story you just mentioned of your best friend, I had heard that on a podcast that I listened to of you where you were a guest. And first of all, I- I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But did that ignite, do you think, 
PTSD in the sense of like driving you towards that behavior as a safe place? Or did any part of it spark like shit just got really real and now it's time for a change? Because that kind of, from what I heard, and obviously you, you'll continue sharing the story, but it seemed as if that was right before you became sober for good, or am I wrong? No. So that was like four years before I got sober. Oh, never mind. Um, maybe three years. I don't remember the exact timeline, but that was really a turning point in that then I really had a reason to drink, <laughs> you know? True. Yeah. I So my parents pulled me out of Florida. I stayed with them in Rhode Island for a summer and I went to a trauma therapist. And the trauma therapist, when I told her the story, it just her jaw just hit the floor. And I'm I was sure. like, well, she can't deal with it. Nobody can help me. I can't deal with it either. Um, and so I just really, like my drinking really, it was already really bad, but that definitely fueled it. I ended mm-hmm. up coming out to California kind of on a whim. I was just supposed to be here on a vacation and I ended up staying. And um, I ended up in detox after about a year. I was just partying nonstop. I was having seizures. I was pretty out of control. And um, then I moved up. I was living in Orange County. I moved up to LA. I got the boyfriend. I got the apartment. I got the job or the internship. And I was like, oh my God, I finally, everything aligned. I got it together. I was only drinking like a glass of wine at dinner or only taking like a little piece of Xanax before bed because I was prescribed after all. So that wasn't a problem. Right. And and for a few months, I could hold it together. And I think this is important because if there's anybody out there listening who has been struggling And then they feel like all of a sudden they can control it. Um, In my experience, that's just a normal function of the disease. You can go through periods where you're not drinking or using. And you can go through periods where you can keep it together. But for me, and this is over the course of 10 years, inevitably, Mm -hmm. shit hits the fan even harder than before. You pick up where you left off and then some. And that was certainly what happened in that situation. My boyfriend ended up moving out because he was like, I cannot deal with this. And I ended up in like pretty much a three-month blackout. So from December to February of 2014, pretty much blacked out, um, having seizures nonstop. I was pretty much living in an apartment that had barely any furniture because the boyfriend had moved out. I never bothered to have like the power or the cable turned on. My neighbor was supplying me with drugs and uh, taking advantage of me and... I ended up in the hospital. Somehow I got out. And at that point, my family flew out, showed up at my front door, and I dropped and had a seizure right then and there. And I always tell that part because I'm like, I was kind of struck sober. Like, Mm -hmm. they showed up at my door on a Saturday morning. I had no clue what the fuck was going on. I barely remember any of this. But they said, as soon as I opened the door, I launched across the room and had a seizure. Um, that's and, wild and so metaphorical in so many ways. Right? I know. It's crazy. And, and what was your relationship like with them up until this point? Because I'm really interested in, and I want to get to this after the whole story, but in ways of like supporting people going through this for anyone mm-hmm. listening. And I'm curious up until this moment, how was your relationship with your family regarding everything with sobriety? It was really tough. You know, I really put them through the ringer and I cannot imagine what it was like to be in their shoes. They Mm -hmm. always wanted the best for me. And every time I would go to rehab and tell them that this was it, they believed me. And when I got out of rehab and I said, I just have to go back to school and like, just get me this apartment and I'll, I promise this is it. You know, they believed me because they're my family. They, they wanted to believe that they want to see the best. Exactly. And um, at that point, by the end, I mean, I had probably traumatized them. You know, I when I found my friend dead, I called them, I called my mom screaming. I can't imagine what that's like mm-hmm. for a parent. I would call them in blackouts just saying the weirdest shit. I mean, over the years, I was always, 
always calling them to bail me out from whatever situation I got in. Um, I got arrested. They had to bail me out. You know, it was just like Mm -hmm. they, yeah, but they were still, they were still there for me. You know, the interesting thing is my mom told me that towards the end there, she was in therapy and, and she was working with her therapist on letting me go and preparing herself to have to bury me. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is just like heartbreaking, you know? And she, she said she got to that point where she was like, she was going to be okay with it. And so it's just unimaginable. They, at that point at the end, really, there was not a whole lot they could do. They were 3000 miles away and I had totally shut everybody off. You know, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. talk to anybody. I couldn't, I couldn't talk to anybody. I was so like riddled with fear and anxiety and I was always either fucked up or withdrawing. And so, you know, they, they kind of flew out as like a last ditch attempt. They were like, this is it. They knew how bad it was. There was something that like sparked that trip, but I'm sure it was just well, they had a done a compiled. yeah, they had done a wellness check on me. So they called the West Hollywood Police, which is where I was living, a few days prior to this, and asked the police to go check on me because they couldn't um, get in touch with me. And the police came to my apartment. I guess they were banging on the door. My dog was in there. Nobody was answering. So they came and they looked in the window and they saw me like face down unresponsive. So they had to break through the window and they took me by ambulance, I know, to Cedar sinai where I was for, I don't know how long. And somehow I got myself out of the hospital and went back to doing what I was doing. So at that point they were like, okay, we got to go. We got to go. This is it. And so that's what, that's what prompted them to show up. And so was that your final stint in rehab after that moment? Yeah. So, you know, it was really wild because I, like I said, I don't really have memory, obviously, of that seizure. Mm -hmm. But I remember bits and pieces of coming to in the hospital. I was at Cedars for, which is the big hospital in LA. I was there for like four or five days, maybe getting stabilized. And at that point, I was presented with a few options of where to go to rehab. And I knew that I didn't want to go to Malibu, which was one option. I knew I didn't want to go to Arizona because I had already been to that one, which was another <laughs> option. And then they presented me with a place in Utah. And I was like, that's where Lindsay Lohan and Mary-Kate Olsen went. So that's where I want to go. I have to go there. <laughs> which shows you like the clarity of my thinking at the time. <laughs> um But that was it. I went to I knew I knew at that point the jig was up because they had seen me, you know launch across the room and have a seizure and they saw the squalor that I was living in and they saw my emaciated body and they saw the drugs everywhere and it was like I couldn't pull the wool over anybody's eyes anymore. Right. There's no way to lie out of that situation. Exactly. And I had and I had to get to that point myself. I had to get to the point of like utter and complete desperation in order to change my lifestyle and adopt a new way of living. So that's why I I always say that I was struck sober because since that moment, I have never wanted a drink since. I've never wanted a pill or a line or anything. It is so crazy because for 10 years, I could not stay sober. Even if it was just a glass of wine, I could not do it for more than like two days. So the fact that you know, it was just lifted after that. And of course there was so much work that went into it after mm-hmm. to deal with the underlying issues and and the things that were causing me to drink and feel like I had to cope that way. But that was it. And I mean, I was going to ask what you felt changed in that instance, like what at that rehab was there anything you can put your finger to other than the fact that you honestly feel like you were really struck sober in that moment? Was there anything else that you reflect back on and think that was why that one stint worked versus the others? Yeah, so there were a couple of things. There was definitely the the fact that I was so desperate. I had I had all the evidence I needed. Like before that, I could I could try to rationalize with myself and say, well, you know, maybe it was maybe it was the Adderall that was the problem, but the drinking really wasn't that bad. Or like, 
maybe it was just X, Y, or Z. I could make up, I could justify anything. <laughs> Addicts are really good at doing that. Yes. And um, so at that point, I was like, wow, like I have nothing left. I have no job. I have no friends. I have no car. I have no apartment. I have no nothing. Mm-hmm. I could see with clarity that like I had run my life completely into the ground. Um, and then the other thing is my family enlisted the help of a group who kind of took the reins and they pretty much made a blueprint of what my recovery was going to look like. So in the past, I would go to treatment for 30 days and then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get out. And like I said before, get a job and get an apartment and go to school. And I was the one. halfway homes or no? Um, I went to one when I was 20. That, that was, a <laughs> that was a mess. I ended up shit faced, drunk and got kicked out. Um, <laughs> the other ones I didn't do any kind okay. of sober living and back to the point of my family wanting to see the best in me, they believed me when I said, like, I I know what I need to do, mm-hmm. and this is what I'm going to do. So I just need to get back to my life. And they would say, okay, because they didn't know. They have no experience with this. This time, there was somebody else in charge. <laughs> so this group that they worked with, it's a group of clinicians who worked as consultants. And so I had one person assigned to me. Mm-hmm. And then my family had their own therapist and this group like really strategically kind of um, untangled us and they really limited the communication between my family and I, especially in early recovery. Cause they were like, your parents need to heal from what you yeah. put them through and mm-hmm. you need to deal with your own stuff and we'll handle the middle stuff. So that was huge to have like a liaison that's big. helping to facilitate the communication because so many times you see, well, you see a lot of different things. You see the family send the loved one to rehab and say, you're broken. Mm-hmm. You need to go get fixed. And then they don't, and then the family or whoever the closest people are to them, they don't do any work. And then the person comes back from treatment back into that same system that's broken. Yeah. And there's landmines everywhere and it just turns out to be a big disaster. So that was. That was huge, and we were so fortunate to have that. And then that same group also, like, in my delusional head when I was 30 days sober and was saying, I just need to get back to my life. Like, what life? I had no life. (laughs) But I had this urgency, like, okay, I'm all fixed now. I need to go back. Um, They were like, yeah, no, no, you're not. And Mm -hmm. they really slowed me down. They pumped the brakes. I did 90 days in my initial treatment in Utah, and then, and I was the president of my rehab, okay? And, and I was like- Hi, That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going back to LA and I'm going to get a job. It was the same old thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and even my counselors there were like, yeah, she's the president of rehab. She's ready to go. And this group that I worked with was like, no, she's not. She's going to go to a step down, like another 90-day treatment. And that was mm-hmm. like- where the big change happened because all of a sudden I wasn't doing it my way anymore and I was accepting, you know, it it was a, it was a lesson in humility. Um, It really, that, that step down program, it's interesting. I was living in Orange County before I moved up to LA, before I got sober and I thought I was like such a hotshot there and I was just partying and I like had this lifestyle and this step down treatment was in Orange County. But this time I was living with like 10 women. We were getting mm-hmm. driven around in like the white druggy buggy. That's what they called it. <laughs> the van from the rehab, like having to go to like outpatient treatment and meetings and stuff like that. It was very humbling put it that way I can only imagine (laughs) but I I needed that that. that's probably a large reality check in a sense of being in that exact same place in such a different stage of life totally and that just lends itself to supporting the the evidence that like I had run my life into the ground you know I was like wow Mm -hmm. like two three years ago I was living here doing this and here I am you know have in this situation. I mean, it was, it was very humbling and I was able to recognize that. 
but that's where that's where the real change started and that's where I really learned how to get like a foundation in recovery and I learned um I learned how to have relationships with other women and I learned mm-hmm. how to take advice and I just it was just such a huge um such a huge growth experience for me. I hope you guys are enjoying today's episode thus far. I want to take a quick break to give a shout out to one of today's sponsors, Elmhurst. As I mentioned in a previous episode, Elmhurst has technically been around since 1925, but was quote unquote founded in 2017 when the oldest dairy in New York City decided to focus on innovative plant milks. I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it again, ingredients matter, especially when it comes to plant milk options. There are so many options out there that are loaded with unnecessary ingredients and that is why I love Elmhurst so much. Their unsweetened variety, which is my favorite, features just two ingredients, water and nuts. If you follow along on my Instagram stories, you know that every morning starts with my espresso latte. It is the highlight of my day and the reason I love it so much is because because of the Elmhurst unsweetened cashew milk. It provides that next level froth on top of my espresso that takes my morning to the next level. Plus, I love using their plant milks in many of my other meals throughout the day. Think chia puddings, overnight oats, granola cereal bowls, even curry soups. There are so many ways to explore with their offerings. If you're interested in ordering these shelf-stable beverages, use code FF15, that's FF15, for 15% off their website at elmhurst1925.com. It's so incredible, the work that you've done, and I'm so grateful that you're able to have done that work and be where you are right now. And I'm curious because I've been pretty close to a few situations um, over the past call year or so of sobriety journeys and trying to help and assist. And for anyone who is similarly in my position as a listener, whether it's a friend or family member and you're trying to be there for that person, I'm always curious to hear from someone who's gone through it what they found helpful or honestly also not helpful for outsiders to do when they're trying to help you. Because I think it's really easy to think you're doing the right thing as a friend or a family member and potentially having it backfire on you. Mm-hmm. So do you have any I mean, I know every case is so specific and different, but any general suggestions or things that you found helpful that your loved ones did or maybe that you felt pushed you away farther? I mean, it definitely varies person to person. Mm -hmm. I think the safest thing to do is to ask, you know, to show interest and, and ask what that person needs to feel supported. I don't know, like, obviously, if somebody isn't sober yet, there's a mm-hmm. fine line between, like, enabling <laughs> right. and being supportive. But if somebody is in early recovery or trying to get sober or anything like that, um, I think don't underestimate how meaningful it is to to be interested and ask, like, what can I do to support you? And if that person mm-hmm. is in a program of recovery, um there are programs for family members or friends of right. the, of that person. And that can be like hugely beneficial. I know that for something like Al-Anon, a lot of people, mm-hmm. it takes a while to find the right group for anything. Um, but I would definitely suggest that or reading some of the literature. So if somebody's in like a 12-step program, maybe reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, those kind of things, like just showing yeah. interest. Um, those are things that really helped me because I felt like we were kind of on this journey together a little bit rather than just, you know, me being the like, quote unquote, identified patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was really, that was really big things that I don't know if this necessarily hurts. And again, this would definitely vary person to person, but right. I cannot stand when people make a thing about drinking around me. Like, Everyone in my family, Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends drink. Nobody is an alcoholic or an addict or anything. And it really, really bothers me when people don't because of me, because that makes me feel like, like, like I'm broken or there's something wrong with me, you know? And I'm like, no, you guys, like I, I am in a place of neutrality. Like I don't even notice when people are drinking. I notice when people aren't drinking. (laughs) So you know, I think there's something to be said about like 
just kind of operating as normally as possible mm-hmm. for some people that might be triggering. So, you know, again, it yeah, kind I of goes back to like conversation. Yeah. It goes but back think, to like asking somebody. Yeah. I have a friend who's recently, he just had his year, um, sobriety anniversary. And that was something that we said in the early stages, like we all were going out for something and we were like, Hey, do you want us to not drink? Like, that's fine. You tell us what you're comfortable with. He's like, no, I want you guys to have fun and just act as if like nothing is different because I don't want to feel that level of like, I'm imposing something on you. And even for me, I didn't drink for call it three months, um, because of a concussion I had from a car accident. And that really changed my relationship with alcohol over the years. I'm someone who I love, I actually enjoy the taste of alcohol and specific drinks in that. And so I drink because I enjoy it. I'm never drinking to get drunk. And there are oftentimes where if we're out, I choose not to drink. And for me, I get so frustrated when people are like, oh, well, I won't drink just because you're not drinking. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't don't make it feel like I'm like yeah. <laughs> imposing on you. You, I don't care. Like it doesn't matter. Um, so it's just so interesting the behavior of people of how they think they might like that might be helping, but it's more making not making you notice, but it it almost makes you feel like an outsider. Is how I yeah feel. yeah it definitely yeah. does. Yeah, and, I think that all of it kind of comes down to like I think the best thing that you can do for for anybody who's like in recovery or trying to recover is just ask, you know, what mm-hmm. are you comfortable with or, and, and what can I do to make you feel supported? And that in itself yeah. is, is huge. I agree. And I think people are really afraid to have conversations like that, not only around sobriety, but I know I've been very close to people who have lost loved ones. And even similarly to that, it's it's just showing up and saying, I'm here for you. What can I do? Instead of ignoring the situation at hand because you're fearful of bringing it up. Right. Yeah. And I feel like probably a lot of times the, the person who is struggling or who's in recovery won't want you to do anything, but they'll just want to know that you're there if, mm-hmm. if they need something. So that's, it's huge. Yeah. And your husband is sober as well, correct? Yes. He's sober 21 years. Wow. That's I know. amazing. I know. So has that been a pillar of strength in your relationship? Yeah. I mean, it's just such an integrated part of our life. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to have that connection for sure. And we wouldn't, I mean, face it, we wouldn't be together were it not for our sobriety. It's pretty mm-hmm. much how we met. Um, yeah. It's, it's the thing that we, it's the thing that bonds us. It's what we really share and have in common. Obviously there are other things, but it's, it's, that's at the core of our relationship, our recovery, mm-hmm. um, our spirituality, how we live our lives, those are things, you know, they're really big things. Those are the things that we that we share. I think there's such a bond in the sober community. And I listen to Dak Shepard's podcast and I talk about it on here like way too much. Me too. I, I'm a little <laughs> obsessed. It's like I dangerous. <laughs> um, I say my dream is to have him on my show because I would die to interview him. My dream um, is to have my husband on his show. <laughs> that I feel like could happen, no? Yeah, they know each other. And I think I think they may have asked, but my husband, like, he's really podcast averse. You should say, like, you should get him to say yes, and then just you show up. Yeah. And you get to be on the show. <laughs> Be like, I know you surprise. actually thought you were getting your husband <laughs> surprised. Um, yeah, that is my absolute dream. But I'm so admiring for I admire him for so many reasons but one of the things that I love about the show is that I do get such a sense of community when it comes to sobriety of like I've been through the shit I know what you're going through how can I help you and for the people that are close in my life that have gone through this it's been so obvious because when I've had a, a close loved one friend or family struggling I've been able to turn to someone else I know and they instantaneously are like, here's my phone number. Tell them to call me. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, you know, I always say that my sobriety and, and everything that I went through, it's my greatest gift in my life. Mm -hmm. The recovery community is, you can't compare it to anything else. You have a 
bunch of people who have been through the same thing as you and who have one purpose and that purpose is to help the next person. Right. It's really incredible. And yeah, there's totally, there's a common bond. Um, There's some literature and I think they describe it as it's like, it's like a bunch of people who have been through like some terrible wreck, right? And survived Mm -hmm. it. We've all had this experience and the circumstances differ from person to person, but the feelings are the same. Yeah, you all share that bond. Yeah, and it's like, I'll walk into a room full of sober people and not know one person. I mean, I've gone to meetings in other countries like Vietnam. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You walk in and it's like they're your family. I mean, it's absolutely Mm -hmm. crazy. We're so, so lucky. So- um, it's really I, inspiring. I, honestly. I try, yeah, I try not to be too preachy about it, and I don't really talk about it very much. I know Dax is really open. Mm-hmm. I've been taught to not be open about it. Right, that's like I'm basically taking the second A out of AA. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, the traditions are from the 30s. That's when when the program came about. So, I think. It, had the had the founders been around today, maybe things would have been a little bit right. different. I also think anonymity is the most important thing, and that's why mm-hmm. the program is still here today. And I get I like I think the reason that they don't want people to break anonymity is that if somebody talks about being a member of AA and they're very vocal about it, and then they go out and drink, well, what message is that sending to other people? Right, people are going to just automatically assume that it's the program that didn't work, not that mm-hmm. the person may have been deficient in some part of the program that they stopped doing. So that's why they always say it works if you work it. And that's true. It's like, if you actually do it, it works. It'll work. (laughs) You just have to do it. Yeah. Um, And so with your recovery, how did you get into this second phase of your life? Because right now in like this health, lifestyle, wellness do you consider yourself an influencer or do you not? Are you someone that hates that word or you're like, yeah, I am? Um, no, I mean, I can't I, decide either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't love it. I don't yeah, love I what agree. it implies, but it's also like, I get you have to put a name to, to what it is. So I would say content creator. Yeah, that's what I normally say. Okay. Yes. Good. <laughs> I, I never know because sometimes if I say content creator, people are like, well, I'm an influencer. And then if I say influencer, they're like, I'm not an influencer. It's I a very paralyzing word. Totally. Yeah. So it has a weird connotation. Ha- yes, it does. Well, because it also comes from the idea that you're admitting that you influence people, which is why right. I don't like the word. <laughs> like if you say, I get in a sense you like we are doing that, but I don't like labeling myself in that being the number one thing I'm doing because I don't think that's the number one thing I'm doing or you're doing. Like I, I agree in the sense of sure, people might be influenced, but the number one goal is to create content to make them feel better about themselves and to help people. Yeah, exactly. And I always say that like, I don't, I don't really want to influence, I want to influence people to to like explore their own lives and find out what works for them. Like, mm-hmm. don't do what I'm doing. Oh, I'm I want to. I want to influence you to to find your own thing. Yeah. So the bio individuality. I'm totally. like, this shit works for me, and it won't work for you. Right. <laughs> so don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how did that all come about after you got sober? When did your interest in the health and wellness industry become? It's been really gradual. So when I got sober, I got sober in 2014. In 2016, I was like, okay, I'm mentally good. I have a good foundation in sobriety, but like, I don't recognize my body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had been pretty much like, I was in my own world from the age of like 18 to 28. So I didn't know anything about the health and wellness industry. I just knew that I wanted to have abs that was it. And at the <laughs> Which, time- What kind of was the health and wellness industry at that time? Yeah, it's true. Um, BBG was huge. I'm still and, doing it. Are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate that it's called BBG, but- Yeah. Well, I, I guess they, I think they might've rebranded it because now Just the app sweat. is called Sweat. Yeah. But my husband and I do it now that we're in quarantine without a gym. We do it Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays together. It is effective. I mean, I will oh my God. I will say that. And yeah, at the time it was pretty it was pretty new and 
it was like the hot thing. And mm-hmm. Instagram, the landscape was different. Obviously, it was easier to get noticed and to find other people. And so I found a bunch of people who were doing it and whose bodies had totally changed. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to start an account. And I started the blonde files because I didn't show my face. I didn't want anyone to know who I was because I was <laughs> posting like before pictures, right. the most unflattering photos. You know, I've always been really petite, but I felt like going from emaciated to then getting sober, like I had this kind of rebound effect. Mm-hmm. And I started having gut issues and really bad bloating and stuff, which I didn't know at the time. But long story short, I started the Blonde Files anonymously so that I could do BBG and connect with other women mm-hmm. who were doing it. And it just kind of took off. Um, it's so amazing how many influencers or content creators in the space now originated because of BBG. Yeah. Jara, Shanae. Yeah. I love them both. I had them both Kelsey. on my show. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. It's really cool. So about six months into it, um, Kayla was doing a, she was doing like a BBG bootcamp tour and she was coming to LA and her team found me really randomly. It's like a needle in a haystack because there were so many women doing it and they had me come and work at the bootcamp and it was me and Kelsey Wells. So that's when I met Kelsey. That's so awesome. Yeah. And from there it just kind of took off and, you know, I never... I never claimed to have the answers. Mm -hmm. I look back on things that I did now and I'm like, oh God. I mean, I went through the whole macro counting phase and I went through like the never miss a Monday phase. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny to reflect on these things that we used to say to ourselves. Yeah. What? I know. And like the Arctic Zero with the two quest bars microwaved and heated up. Oh my God. (laughs) The fucking quest bars. And I thought- things ripped my stomach. Me too. But I thought I I was like- every day because they were like nothing, but they tasted so good. And then I'd be sitting at my desk at work, like bloated, bent over, feeling like (laughs) I was going to (laughs) explode. You know, I look at the stuff that I was eating and I'm like, oh my God, girl, like- get it together. But I didn't Mm -hmm. know any better at the time. I was like, oh, Arctic Zero is like 100 calories. So it's healthy. And Quest Bars are, you know, however many calories. So they're healthy. Like I just had no idea. And, um, but that I think, I think that's what people connected to also. Like I was very honest throughout my whole journey of what was working and what wasn't and the struggles. Mm -hmm. And, and it has, always just kind of been like a diary since day one. So that's how it all that's how it all started. And I was working for a couple of years for that company that my family hired when I got sober. Because oh, I was so you worked so, for the company. Yeah. I went to school that's for amazing. drug and alcohol counseling and then I was working with them. I was so passionate about it. But I also had this Instagram thing on the side. Mm-hmm. And at that point I think I was around like a hundred maybe a little over 100,000 followers, had never made money on Instagram, didn't even really know that I could. And then I I found out what people were charging and I was like, what? And I found myself at a crossroads where I was like, I'm either going to pursue my own thing or I'm going to do the counseling. I can't do both because it's such like, you just, you have to have your whole heart in it, in Mm -hmm. that kind of, um, in that kind of profession. So I decided to pursue the Blonde Files, which is still the umbrella name for for my company or brand, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that was like two years ago. And I've been pursuing it since. And it turned into like a website, which just relaunched and a couple ebooks and the podcast, of course, which is a year old. And I'm starting a charity initiative. Um, so that will be out in the next couple of weeks. And what else? It's amazing. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear your two career paths because in a sense, do you feel like you're still doing some of that counseling and assistance work through your account and your podcast? Because from an outsider's perspective, it feels like you are. And so I'm curious if you feel that sense of accomplishment as well. Um, I do. Yeah. And I kind of recognized that when I found myself at that crossroads where I was like, I can either help this one family mm-hmm. or like two families if I was really doing a lot. Um, but given the logistics of everything, I mean, it was, we were a really small group. We had a really small client base. 
So I was like, I can either help the one or I can try to help as many people as possible. Right. And I didn't really know what that was going to look like at the time. And, um, but yeah, I have found that it's been so gratifying in that sense because I wasn't sure if I would accomplish that. And now I look back and I'm like, I have people DM me and email me every day saying that they're trying to get sober and they don't know what to do. It's incredible. And, and can I help? And I always say, like, I don't really talk about my program mm-hmm. uh, like in a public level, but if you send me a message, I'll always respond and I can talk about it privately. Um, yeah. You're and just helping a shitload of people. Thank Even you. just by talking about, like, just sharing your story on here. I know you've helped me a lot being a outsider in a situation on how to handle it. And just, I think it's really helpful to hear the mindset of someone who's gone through it to then help for someone who's handling it from an outside of maybe this is how they're feeling, or maybe this is what they're thinking, and this is what I can do. So rest assured, you are 100% helping a ton of people. <laughs> I appreciate that. It, it can get kind of hard to recognize it just in the day-to-day, especially yep. when you know, it's like, well, today I posted my skincare routine. Like, who am I helping with that? <laughs> you know, you have those days I'm where like, it's like, what does this help? Yeah. I'm like, what am I doing? But that's all part of it. Yeah. You know, it's like you have to do that, whatever percent of it is in order to do the other mm-hmm. percent. Like I always say, like, I have to do the the 20 or 30% of like the bullshit <laughs> in yeah. order to be able to do like the 70% of what I'm really trying to do here. Um, right. Because at the end of the day, like you got to pay your bills. And, of course. <laughs> and it's I a mean, business and all of that. It's so funny because when people like get so frustrated by sponsored stuff, I'm mm-hmm. like, if you want to be able to consume, not just mine, I mean anyone's content, you have to understand that at some back end, they need to be making money to be able to do this. So similarly yeah. to the way that there are commercials on TV, there needs to be some sponsored posts every once in a while. Right. And I heard somebody, I can't remember who it was, talking about like, if you look at an ad in a magazine and you look at a photo, there was a makeup artist, there was a set director, there was a photographer, Mm -hmm. there was a creative director, you know, whatever, all these different components that go into it that get paid. So if one person is doing that, or if that one person is hiring contractors to do all that, like they have to get paid. So it's tough. I mean, I think there's definitely an expectation among content consumers that they want to get everything for free free. and they still Mm -hmm. do. Like you don't have to buy the product. You're, you're getting it for free. If you don't like a sponsored post, move on. And, Mm -hmm. and yeah, so it's tough. And I'm curious with your page, at what point, because you said in the beginning you didn't want to show your face and it was the blonde files, but at what point did you feel comfortable sharing your whole self? Was it some form of transformation that allowed you to feel that way or was it just gradual and it wasn't really anything that took a lot of thought process? I don't really recall if there was a whole thought process behind it, but it did, you know, the account did pick up pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and... I think it was probably around the time that I worked at the BBG thing, sometime around then that I sh- that I showed my face. Um, and I just, you know, I just kind of remembered that, like, that's how you connect with people. You right. don't have to just show the good. And I don't have to be ashamed of the bad, or it's not even bad. I don't have to be ashamed of, like, the struggles and the challenges. That's... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always like bring it back to my sobriety and I'm like, that's, that's how you connect with people. And that's how you get free yourself. Like if you're keeping, if you're, if you're hiding things and you have secrets and you're ashamed, like that's that cycle that's so hard to get out of. So I definitely had my reasons for starting it. I mean, starting it anonymously, if I had only done it for a month or whatever, then, you know, who cares? But when I realized that it was turning into something and that people were getting really engaged in what was going on in the day-to-day and mm-hmm. I started having more visibility, um, I just decided, you know, who cares? <laughs> yeah, mine, very similarly, when I started my account, mine was for the purpose of I was working in 
a corporate job and I just didn't feel like they would appreciate or respect this. And I really had no plans of it. And so when I came up with Freckled Foodie, I'm like, well, I don't want my name on there and I'm never going to show my face. I will never talk to the camera. Like it's just going to be recipes. And it wasn't until honestly towards me quitting my job that I finally felt comfortable showing up. And that was when my account, not that it's like taken off, but that was when I really started to build and foster a community because people felt a connection. And I was sharing shit that I was actually going through, not just like, here's my smoothie that I made, which is helpful for people. But I also think that people turn to these social apps for the social purpose and for actually connecting with people. Yeah. Like the the number one thing that helped me get sober was identifying with somebody else and hearing them mm-hmm. talk vulnerably and openly about the shit that they had gone through, the really, really bad shit, not the good. Right. And that's what I connected with. So I kind of remember how powerful identification is and mm-hmm. relating to somebody else. So I try to bring that to my account. And I agree. Obviously there you know there are times it, it can be a lot sometimes because you also want to have your privacy but mm-hmm. i try to really like maintain a lot of transparency and and even though i keep certain aspects of my life private um i do try to bring like i i do try to keep it like keep those struggles and and the highs and the lows and all of that at the forefront and like the real stuff that's happening in my life yep and i feel the same way similarly to what you just said, for me, I have a great, profound appreciation for vulnerability. And I would love if we all just showed up somewhere and laid all of our shit on the table. And I'm very much like, this is what you're getting. Like, this is me. You either like it or you don't like it. And that's fine. I understand. But I like to put it all out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I have such an appreciation when I feel other people do that because I do think when you show up with that mentality, it encourages others as well. But that's when I feel a connection with anyone, whether it's someone on a platform or over DM or a close friend or even family members. I do think that there's a profound level of connection when you put when you actually express your truest and your full self. Yeah, absolutely. I and totally agree. That's honestly one of the reasons I love your account and your show so much because I think you do that. Thank you. Of course. And I'm curious what you would say your favorite characteristic about yourself is. Oh, man. I know. It's one of the <laughs> I ask. I, I have three questions that I get in within every episode, and that's one of them. Oh, my gosh. Well, I would probably have to say my openness. Mm-hmm. Um, my openness and my willingness to like to share all of that, the good and the bad, um, for the purpose of helping somebody else. I agree. I think it's really inspiring. Thank um, you. Very inspiring. And then we never really even touched on food other than shit quest bars. <laughs> but <laughs> to close every episode, I like to ask, what are the three ways to your heart through food? So it can be extremely specific down to like a dish at this restaurant that you dream about every day, or it could be as generic as you like. So like my three, my three ultimates or. Yeah. Like the, whatever okay. brings you that level of like such happiness. Okay. So right now this is really random, but <laughs> dates with almond butter and who kitchen. So good. So simple. So good. So fucking good. I sometimes put a banana slice in there and freeze oh, it. Oh my God, I'm going to do that tonight. <laughs> yes, it's so good. That's my absolute favorite. Um, let's see. So that would be one. This is so hard, but another it's, it's one. the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> the other one is bulletproof vanilla collagen bars. Hopefully okay, a little thank bit. thank you. People hate them and I love <laughs> what? them. What? Fine. Give them all to me. I order cases of them on Amazon. They are my favorite thing in the world. Hopefully they're you a little like, bit better. You like the vanilla better. flavor? Yes. Hopefully they're better than the Quest bars. <laughs> I can't yeah. quit them. They are my, it's like the highlight of my eating every day. I'm like sad when it's over. I just, I love them so much. I get so much, so many mixed opinions on those. I love them. And I also love the lemon shortbread one, which is surprising for me. Um, 
But, you know, people sometimes will be like, these things like are the disgusting. Texture. Yeah. yeah, the texture. It's a little chalky. I love it. I, it I melts in them. your mouth. I always, I'm like a, a very, <laughs> I'm very much a routine person. So I'll always have my breakfast and then mm-hmm. I'll have my bulletproof bar, usually around like 12. And I have it with a sparkling water. Something about that combo. I don't drink sparkling until 12. So that's like Got it. my treat. Yeah, it's very weird. Something to look forward to. <laughs> and then I would say my third thing would probably be this Mare Linguini pasta at Cafe Dolfini. It's, well, now that I'm blast putting it on blast, it's not secret anymore, but it's my husband <laughs> and I's little secret favorite place. It's where we had our first date. It's Is that in we, LA? Yes. Um, okay. It's right on PCH in, I guess it's technically Santa Monica, little tiny Italian place, authentic. So, so good. And yeah, it's where we had our first date. It's where we went the night that we got engaged. And that's the dish that. that I had both times. So that's like my my close to my heart that's dish. So meaningful. And it's just like pasta with, you know, clams and mussels and calamari Yum. and all that stuff. Yeah. That sounds delicious, but I love, I have a spot, my husband and I were dating since we were 15, or <laughs> technically, I guess I was 16, um, and he was 17, so I lied. Ooh, but Older we, man. Oh, yeah. He was <laughs> like the guy, he transferred from the public school to the private school, repeated his junior year, and he was like the hot heartthrob that came, like we <laughs> came from Princeton, New Jersey, so like a very nice town, and we were like, ooh, a public school kid, as if it was like... <laughs> any different um but we went to this uh chinese restaurant in town that still exists and so it will always have a soft spot in my heart no matter what i love that that was our first date yeah it's like that sentimental but yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) um well thank you so much for being on here it was so much fun and honestly i am so appreciative of the work that you're doing and everything that you're putting out there and for everyone listening the best place to find you would be Instagram? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram okay. at Ariel Laurie, and then they can find everything else from there. Right. It'll all be in the show notes, but that'll probably be the, the, the main spot with everything linked. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. I thoroughly hope you enjoyed it. If you could be so kind, I would greatly appreciate a rate and or review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Currently, this one's available on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please subscribe to make sure you're up to date with new episodes coming at you every Friday morning. If once a week isn't enough of me, please follow along on my most active social channel, Instagram. Find me, my unedited videos, recipes, random rants, and info for all my other social channels on there at Freckled Foodie.